Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a writer, performer, composer, lyricist, musician, all kinds of things. It's Miriam Poltrow, everybody. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm, I'm uh, very thrilled to be here. We're here to talk about... Jane Eyre the Musical. I'm always interested on when we do Broadway shows to go to the Tony page, obviously, for the for the year the show came out. And mm-hmm. hilariously, this is the third of four Best Musical nominees for that year. Uh, we are closing in on 2001 in a serious way because we've done the producers, we've done the full Monty, and now we're doing Jane Eyre. So someone has to come on and do Class Act. So that's my my call to the... I've never heard of Class oh, Act. Oh, no. Someone, oh, I know. I, really I have a friend who's a musical theater encyclopedia. He would he would know it. He'd be able to recite. He knows what they won. He knows who was in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Class Act is, <laughs> Class Act is good. That's an Edward Kleban musical. But uh, we're going to stick with our topic here and talk about Jane Eyre. How did Jane Eyre come into your life? When I was maybe 14, I'm taking a stab at that. Um, uh, I received this CD for Christmas from my parents. They must have come across it in a Barnes and Noble or something. Mm-hmm on their, you know, last minute dash. And uh, I'm not even sure my sisters have ever heard it. It's it's one of those things like I was digging through stuff the other day and I found my Walkman. Mm-hmm. It would have been a private listen. It would have been something that I listened to all the time. Um, and I was raised very conservative religious. So anything Austin, anything Bronte was very kosher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my parents oh, would have okay. just picked it up thinking this is safe and given it to me. She'll love this. And I, it turns out I did. Mm-hmm. I did really actually enjoy it. That's pretty great. That's for, so. But does it fit in the sort of conservative religious upbringing of your of your young life? Funnily, not. No, I think they have no idea what the content of <laughs> yeah. this. I, I've never read the book either. To be, I had plans to read it in advance of this podcast, and I ran out of time. But oh I was gosh. obsessed with Wuthering Heights. Uh-huh. Like I read Wuthering Heights in high school. That was my big obsession. Okay. Um, I think my parents would be. Uh, a little mortified to discover what this story is actually about. Because <laughs> like, it's it's funny to lump, like, understandable, and it occurs, but it's funny to lump Jane Austen and the Brontes in the I same know. sentence because they did not write the same kind of novels at Nowhere all. near. No. But it's like 1800s women is somehow safe. Right. As though they, as though they were asexual beings who, you know... Well, right. We're devout religious and... <laughs> well, and the, and the Austen novels are very chaste. You know, they're comedic. They are. They are. They're very yeah. social mores, that kind of thing. Light. And and the the excellent books, but 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 sort of light comedy. And the the Bronte sisters were after an entirely different set of values. <laughs> Truly. Circumstances and, and everything else. So that is yeah, well, 
Yeah, always read the tin, folks, when you buy something for, <laughs> for somebody. I have to we'll, we'll just bring it up now because it's going to come up a bunch of different times, I'm sure. But you have written a Bronte sister concept album musical, right? Is that, yes. is that an accurate way to describe it? Yeah, okay. that's accurate. Um, called Glasstown. And mm-hmm. uh, so what is your experience with the Bronte sisters? Is it just through these books that you, you were allowed to read as a kid? And, and which ones have you read? <laughs> I've read Wuthering Heights Mm -hmm. and now I've read quite a bit of their correspondence and poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, I had purposely avoided Jane Eyre while writing Glasstown because I feel like that's the one that looms large Mm -hmm. and has been done. It's been adapted so many times for film and adapted. um, And I was much more interested in the Brontes as people Mm -hmm. um, than their their output. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not know that they had a brother. Yes. I knew they were three sisters. I came across that information accidentally a couple of years ago. And it suddenly occurred to me that it's like when you form a band as a family, I'm one of three sisters and a brother. I'm the oldest. Oh, wow. We, we you know, improvised musicals together as kids. We, you know, everybody picked up a different instrument. And that's the thought that I had. That's what occurred to me was like, oh, they had a brother who was kind of in the background. So he must have been their rhythm guitarist. <laughs> and Not thus, Glasstown was born. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I like that. And you use that great um, painting that Brantwell made that, of, yep, of the sisters. That's who painted that famous portrait. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the Brontes are fascinating characters, but we'll get to them in a second. Really? I just wanted to throw that in as the background. Um, so I was hesitant about whether to do this or not, but I think it's somewhat important. Can you give Address a, the elephant in the room? Which elephant? There's probably several. Uh, but, the leading man, or okay, yes, that is okay. That's on my long list of things to talk about. <laughs> okay, great, great. We'll get um, there. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll 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 get to yeah. Oh man, that was a fun Wikipedia read. Let me Ouch. just tell you. Yep. Um, but uh, no, is is to start with. So, like a lot of eighteenth, nineteenth century novels, this story has a tremendous amount of plot. So I don't want to like get too deep in the paint on the details of what happens, but do you think you could give people a cursory summation of what happens in Jane Eyre? <laughs> I can, because I think it's it's been well simplified in things like the musical and the film adaptations. Mm. Um, Jane Eyre is a poor orphan um, who grows up to become a governess by trade. She um, she is shipped off a series of events to uh, the home of Edward Rochester, who is an older, brooding, sexy mystery of a man. And uh, his ward, I guess you'd say, Adele, um, is her pupil. And uh, Edward and Jane fall in love, but, you know, that it cannot be because she's a governess and he's this wealthy man and he is um, expected to be engaged to this wealthy socialite. Um, that falls apart and he does actually propose to Jane and then on their wedding day, Jane discovers that he's not only already married, but he is keeping his wife captive in the attic (laughs) and she flees, she runs away across the moors, but they are destined to be together because there's, they're one in the same soul. And, uh, she hears his voice calling to her when she's about to accept the proposal of a young, uh, pastor i guess yeah and so she decides to head back toward edward and discovers along the way that his wife has uh died now 
Um, she set fire to the mansion and essentially, whether accidentally or purposefully, uh, committed suicide. And Edward is now single. Right. Missing uh, a hand and he can't see, after. but he's definitely single. <laughs> Finally, Finally, I guess. Right. <laughs> and they live happily a strange ever plot. I think it it's, is. It's the more I think about it, the more it does trouble me it's so a much. Really, it's a really strange plot. And it's a, it's an intricate plot and it's a slow book i remember mm-hmm. from my attempt to read it i will confess it is a very slow <laughs> book and <laughs> but most of those books are kind of languid the only the only bronte of any of their book the only bronte book i've ever finished is the tenant at wildfeld hall um which i love like absolutely uh-huh. love uh but it, it it is it's the only it's the Anne bronte novel it's sort of the the the, the one you know the black sheep novel um, mm-hmm. but it's a very, very riveting read. Um, but the, the, these, all these novels of the, of the period, they're very, they're, you know, they're published in kind of serial, they're long, they're take their time, they're broken into sections and then broken into parts. And then they're very like, they take their time with these things. And one of the things I kept reading about the musical <laughs> is that the musical kind of cliffs notes this story, which you'd have oh, yes. to do. You couldn't you do have this to. on stage in even three hours. Like it would take, no. it would take a dinner break in two days to get this thing <laughs> fully mounted. It'd be exhausting. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Yeah, Come the, back tomorrow for part two. Right, for part two of Jane Eyre. <laughs> We're going to be at the Moore House for a while, folks. It's like, oh, goody. Uh, which is part of the, the, you know, the mood and the style of, of the novel at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just, it does really kind of zip along. I will say I had never heard this show. I'd heard of it, but I'd never listened to it until you you brought it up. And I was expecting, as uh, Casey Aaron Clark calls them, uh, contemporary scores and corsets. Uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of that. There's bits of that, for but sure. But it is not a Frank Wildhorn style quasi-rock gothic music like no. with period musical it is like it is earnest it is earnest it is very earnest very very earnest uh and i was it was an odd listen i'll have to say like it was what did it so what did it feel like when you were in, in high school did it just grab all wish, the right like emotional parts i didn't have taste <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had i taste. really didn't i was exposed to so little and um one of the few genres of music I was allowed to listen to or consume was show tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had nothing to compare this to. I really wasn't, I think I didn't even encounter Jekyll and Hyde until I was in college. So I had no wild and I had no nineties, sure. early two thousands until I was really like hitting my twenties. Um, Wicked came out while I was in college. That was like okay. life changing for that reason. Like whatever your taste and your take on Wicked, like it sounded so different and it resonated so powerfully for myself and the young women that I knew like to have two female leads, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I liked having something that was mine. So Mm -hmm. I had this musical that I knew and not a lot of other people knew, which is never the case. (laughs) I'm always the person who's like, I don't know the words. I don't know anything Um, late to the party. And, uh, and I think that I, uh, as I'm also a writer and was also a writer that I took, took some refuge in that, at least the little that I knew of the Brontes mm, that mm-hmm. they, that they were all young women who self-sufficient started writing as children and all the way through adolescence and self-published their first books. So there's some, while I didn't, uh, the story of Jane Eyre didn't necessarily appeal to me the way like Wuthering Heights did mm-hmm. just, just like a wild, you know, Gothic adventure. Yeah. Um, 
I knew I was familiar with the musical. I could retreat. I could listen to it by myself. I was allowed to do it and it was safe. And I don't know. I think you absorb things a lot quicker <laughs> when you're a teenager. Oh, 100%. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, 100%. I, yeah. I hadn't listened to it in years. And then I suddenly remembered it a few years ago and downloaded it to listen. And I was like, the, the words just came right back. Mm-hmm. Like the bits of the score that I remembered were still in my brain somewhere yeah. after 20 years. And they'll be there not- forever. They will. Because <laughs> you're a sponge. I mean, you're an absolute, mm-hmm. not only emotional sponge, at that age, but like you are just a sponge of material. You are constantly absorbing information. And if it if you like it, and you just lit like you say if you if it's yours if it's private and you just put your headphones on and like listen to it yeah. over and over and over again you'll yeah that'll be with you forever forever mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that's ever mm-hmm. going anywhere it is a it's kind of a an odd listen I have to say like it 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 moves along pretty nicely but it is very very long and I found myself on repeated listens forgetting where I was. A little bit like because I knew the story huh? enough and I reread it before I listened to it. And then I kind of read along with the synopsis while I was listening. Be like, oh, where are we? OK, here we are. That's great. Oh, that's this familiar, you know. And but like in repeated listens, I just sort of the songs kind of until we got to the comedy numbers, which stick out sort of like yeah, a sore thumb do. in a serious way. <laughs> slip, slip of a girl. Slip of a girl the... is the big one where it's like, oh, I know where I am. <laughs> It's so funny. Like, honestly, it's catchy as hell. I don't know why he sent them. I told him I would not wear them. Not wear them? And who are you to say you will not wear jewels given to you by Mr. Edward Fairfax Rochester? A slip of a girl whose form I'll be sworn he should scorn to adore. No, indeed, Mrs. Fairfax. A slip of a girl who'd be blessed at the best to be fetchingly dressed. I shall not wear them. A slip of a girl who'd do as she's told to be wholly cajoled. Laughable, impudent, brazen, audacious. Saucy, impertinent, bold, and ungracious. It's so, there's so much emotion. And it, but it's, <laughs> it's not exhausting in the way that can be. It is just like a lot. It's just a lot of emotion. It's and very earnest. It is it's so, very, I mean, earnest, it's yeah. Dark. It's dark. It captures some of that gothic darkness, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, it is very dark. The yeah. Opening note of, uh, what is it, Children of God? There's that little prologue. Yes. And then, the, I, I, I reference this as the, the Mr. Bumble character. I don't know character names ever. Don't ask me. Sure. What I'm, I'm watching a Netflix show. I'm like, get that one. The guy with the red hair. I just, I don't know. Um, it's a lot darker, obviously, than the opening of Oliver. But I, I think of them as so similar because Oliver was the first musical I ever did. And I know it inside and out. And they both start in these like workhouse orphanage place with these like terrible, oppressive adults who treat them like crap. But that... That like big opening note and the swirling strings before the, the little girls start singing is dark and stirring. When a girl can't be saved, God hears her plea. But he leaves her soul to me. Form classes! Silence! Order! And it is the the production photos I found were, I mean, it seemed to have been staged in a very dark and 
dreamy, it's gothic gloomy. kind of way. It is gloomy. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's it is the a word. Brown. I think of it as a brown show. There's lots yeah. of brown and gray. And it was <laughs> the show that it kept wanting to be, it seemed to me, when I was listening to it and looking at pictures of it, obviously, was Les Mis. It seemed to have this very, like, Les Mis vibe. And obviously, John Carriage wrote the book for this and you yep. know, was involved with Les Mis through the RSC and all that and all the way up to Broadway. Um so they share that DNA, but this is not like this. It is not. not. It is in not. Anyway, Miz. And I don't know what makes Les Mis Les Mis exactly, but it ain't it ain't this. The 80s. I think well, it's the, the 80s. 80s. Like, the, the synthesizers. <laughs> yes. Why is Cats Cats? Because right, the 80s. Because the 80s. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, that is not to be discounted, certainly. <laughs> not at all. That's not even a critique. That's just that's a, just I a, think. Yeah. But I also wonder if it comes down to... I mean, Les Mis is obviously a much is one of the largest novels I've ever seen in a bookstore, and they this is a, a big book as well. But there's something in the way that the story of Les Mis is edited mm-hmm. down to sort of the most efficient version of that story. Whereas this, mm-hmm. reading the 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 synopsis, having, having not seen it, I can't fully judge. But read the synopsis, seen some clips and things, it does feel like Cliff's Notes. Like, we're just really yes. hitting the high points. If you've read the book, you will recognize tons of stuff we're doing. If you haven't, hopefully you'll still be able to follow Hope you along. Can't keep up. Right. Try to keep up. Um, it's, it's Jane Eyre. She's sad. Go. She's, she's sad and lonely. She's in love with this one man. Right. That she will eventually have. Right. Um, I think the difference there, in my mind, at least musically, is that Les Mis seems to have been treated more like an opera mm. in that there mm-hmm. is a lot more singing. There's yeah. a lot more small bits, short songs quick bits of character development, whereas Jane, Jane Eyre is really a, just a book musical. So yes. like the high points are the 15 songs or whatever. And it's like, we've got to convey a lot of emotion. We've got, you know, we've got to have the big I want number and we've got to have the, it's not that those things don't exist in Les Mis, but I think they are ironed out a little more and stretched out a little more. Yeah. And, and done more smoothly. <laughs> when sung throughs have, I think this maybe should have been a sung through almost like, I don't, I don't know how that, works and obviously that's a different kind of composer that's a different kind of structured musical but mm-hmm. it certainly is epic enough to earn that kind of like this stopping and talking would like song these songs stopping for dialogue would seem to be the death of it to me like it would yes. just kill yeah kill the mood and kill the momentum because it's so so persistent it is a fa- i mean it's it's a, it's a good listen it it, it has its it's it, it's runs but it like i can't imagine like a song ending and somebody stepping on and saying Jane, you know, and being like, oh, God, mm-hmm. really? We're going to talk about this? Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about this. I just want to just keep singing. <laughs> just shut up and it keep feels, singing. It feels adolescent to me. Oh, it that's feels interesting. Like, uh, like there are some excellent bits of music in it. I mm-hmm. think overall, it's still, it was like, it was right before this upswing of like theater pop. Yes. Um, so you can hear bits of that in the score. There mm-hmm. are moments where it's like, oh, and we're going to belt now. But why? Because like music the tone of it hasn't been like that. Yeah. Um, and it feels like they were edging toward it being more contemporary while trying to maintain some historical accuracy somehow and not totally smooth for that reason. Like there are songs that I like, and then there, there are some skips or like right. I get to a certain section of the song. I'm just like, I'm just going to skip ahead now. Slide across this song. It's fine. I wonder if this would have. The finale. Well, yeah. Oh gosh. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that. Cause man, <laughs> I it... never ever listened to it today for you. 
<laughs> I was just like, to be I a completist. To. I must. Today is the day. I must do. I'm required to do it. And I listened to the whole finale. It it's so funny. I was trying to think <laughs> of the second time I listened to it. Like, what? what is the problem? Like, what's bothering me? And I think <laughs> what was bothering me the most is that it is not it's it's too long and not long enough it either the show or the finale the finale the finale number like that moment it either needs to be to have its druthers and be 10 minutes long and really get into everything they're trying to express in the emotional Uh way that they want or it needs to be four minutes and let's get the hell out of here it's it's Mm -hmm. like it's like seven or like eight it's just like it's 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 just the wrong length where I'm sort of like, I start to notice Everything how long about it, is. it is wrong. Yeah. It just doesn't, it, it really like, it's a bummer. <laughs> it's, it is such a bummer. It's supposed to be this happy ending and it's like, it's musically sluggish and boring. And I mean, it, the musical itself has been earnest up until that point, but it's like somehow taken to another level of like, this is, I mean, this is too schlocky y'all. Oh. <laughs> and it comes after a moment. I mean, there's this sort of like quasi supernatural moment where, like you say, Jane is about to accept this proposal for this man she doesn't really love because it's the practical thing to do and her life has been mm-hmm. kind of a disaster. And then she hears his voice across the moor mm-hmm. and like runs back to the house. And it and, and then it's true. Like he was calling to her and the wind took it. And, he heard, and like that is so miraculous. I wanted the mm-hmm. ending to be more amazed and happy and beautiful and all and it's just it it's, but it's kumbaya yeah it's oh, like man. we've gone we've gone from we've gone from every single uh song is like a point of view song it's mm-hmm. a character delivering information or expressing themselves except for very brief bits where there's like a chorus narration mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. which is cool kind of spooky there are bits of that that are gorgeous the opening of act two i think is really beautiful um but then all of a sudden everybody's standing around in the finale singing about how we're brave enough for love. And it's like, that's not the message of Jane Eyre. Right. That's not the message of the show. Yeah. That, that even if those words are ripped directly from the novel, that is the most corny. Yeah. It just, it is a whole other show suddenly that it just doesn't work at all on any level for me. Holding on for precious life. The purifying flame has washed us clean of all our fears. It, it was, was a miracle, miracle of God. I will never lose faith. I will never lose heart. For you have restored my trust. And I know you're afraid. I'm as scared as you are. And as you know, as as I, I was just talking, I don't remember who I was talking with this about. I was talking with somebody about this the other day. Endings are hard. It's hard, oh, totally. hard to write an ending. It's very, very difficult. But you know, maybe another pass would have been. Yeah, <laughs> way to go. I, it makes. It, I have so many questions. <laughs> like, I would. Did it, you just give up at the end? It, it I don't know. Like, were like, you like good enough? We're tired. Well, I think they. I think 
I think they just liked the song and they thought that's a hit or that's an ending or that's a something and like we'll just it use is it. Ending. It'll work. And it certainly ends. The show the C D definitely stops when it's over. Oh, just dead in the water. And it doesn't well, this is a good segue into the fact that I was going to say before that, like, one of the things that really propels you through the album is the cast is so good. Mm-hmm, uh, and they are. And it's very well suited to this production. And it, it's full of people you may know and people you, you may not know and a lot of regular uh, Broadway names of the time. Um, and, <laughs> well, we'll say, first of all, I will say I thought Marla Schaefel was great. I thought she I think she's phenomenal. I don't know how long she was with the show, how much of the development she was with. I think the whole way. I think she was like, I think so too. She was, she was involved in the show and she's very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, and she, I I think, I think she stopped performing at a certain point after this show. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, just went about her life, which is great. But, uh, (laughs) And Anthony, Anthony Cravello, he, he Tony Award winner, was involved in the show before it got to Broadway. But uh, once it got to Broadway, actually once it got to La Jolla and then got to Broadway, um, mm-hmm. the the role of Mr. Edward Fairfax Rochester was taken over by James Barber, um, who <sighs> is not a is a performer who I was sort of sitting there listening to. This was my experience, and like. Uh, spoiler alert, folks, and also I think content warning. Content warning. Content Thank warning. You. I wanted to interject. I appreciate yeah, you doing that. Content warning for for uh, what would you say? What would be our content warning? Uh, statu- assault, assault. Statutory rape. Statutory rape and assault. Yeah. It, so he he. I'm reading through his list. I'm like, God, his voice sounds familiar. And I was like, Oh, he was in Carousel. And oh, he's in. The, okay, like I've I heard him in that. And I'm reading. I knew him as the Beast. He was my favorite Beast. Oh, there you I, go. I loved. Beauty and the Beast, and until I found out, <laughs> and you're reading down the career. Well, what's so? I mean, what's it's it's not funny, but it's funny the way these things end up in Wikipedia articles. Um, oh, is you're they reading phrase it in a funny way? Well, no, no. It's just the fact that you're reading along, and it's like personal life. He's married to so and so. He's been an artistic board member, and in 20, 2006, he was arrested and charged with statutory rape. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, and you kind of freeze and go, Oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, like. It seems like they're trying to slip it in under the radar. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am now noticing. I am now noticing it is it is up in at the the top also as like the second paragraph of his uh, intro. But okay, I never good. it good, but I never read that on a Wikipedia page. I skip down. Yeah, usually articles. I'm like, am I on the right page? Great, skip right. the person. I don't need life. the summary. What, what Broadway <laughs> shows is he been in? Right? I, didn't, I didn't come here for what he was arrested for. So that color, I will say that I read that like. Halfway through the first listen, and I can't say it didn't color my experience <laughs> as it should. I, I, I mean, oh, sure. like, it's difficult for me to listen to you for that reason. Like, I loved this show for so many years just because I knew it and it was like in my bones, and I grew up with it to some degree, like blossomed into a young woman listening to, listening to it. And I was a fan of his, I knew his voice, I knew his work. Like, mm-hmm. YouTube was a thing, um, and you know, bootleg recordings of whatever, sure. Um, and I just can't listen to like I did listen to the whole thing today, but it just it irks me to listen to him sing. He has a beautiful, beautiful voice, mm-hmm. and and I just can't stomach it. He, he does though have. There was a certain period of time from like ninety to two thousand where we had these baritones mm-hmm. or these baritoners, but really baritones. He's he's a he's a solid. Baritone. I would say he's a baritone, but he's so well trained. He's he has a light like top. A, he has a he has a great good, upper range. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but he, his voice is, while 
I was like, gosh, I've heard that voice before. I've also heard that voice a lot. Like Anthony Cravello has that same kind of voice. Terrence Mann mm-hmm. has, I think, the best version of that voice. And, you know, Robert Westenberg. Like there's all these baritones of this period who are like ripping it up and they're writing good parts for these baritones yes. to play. And it is a beautifully parts. written part for this voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. But I was then trying to think of like contemporary people, like who's the baritone in this range of today? And it sort of occurred to me, I don't, I haven't heard that in a while like this is not, a lot of tenors a lot of tenors and a lot of belters like i'm not hearing yeah. i'm not hearing except for hades town obviously but that's a bass yeah. part really that's more a than bass. baritone that's a bass yeah like where is my where's my javert where's my sholgosh where's my you know off broadway like, oh they're yeah? my friends i have a, a oh, very wow. dear friend who's like an incredibly well-trained he's i want him to sing this role so bad because i'm like mate this is written for you he's got like this gorgeous foghorn like clear supported well-trained baritone and i'm like tyler needs to sing this role. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to hear it. but tyler's not working on broadway so <laughs> well for, the parts. for tyler well that's I the know. thing is i haven't yeah and and i don't know what that what that is i mean if it's just the moment we're in right now and that's yeah. you know that's what it is it's all belters and tenors then fine uh, I can because the style the people are writing like lots of theater pop and mm-hmm. like more contemporary music, and it's just more middle. You think like more? Like, would you call it middle of the road, or would you call it like? <sighs> I could go on a real tangent oh. about my opinions of theater music. Release, release, um, please. Yes, uh, I'll do. try to keep it. I think that because <clears throat> I've had this conversation with people a lot. I consider myself a failed theater kid. I grew up doing musical theater. I do know a lot of shows, but I I got to be an adult in New York and I was like, this is not for me and I'm not very good at this. Um, So my music and acting has mostly been separate. Now I'm kind of, there's some interweaving and overlap now. But all that to say, most of my musical knowledge and experience is not theater music. Mm. And I don't believe most people writing theater music have any idea what pop or rock actually is. Or how to write it, at oh. least. And they write things and call it a pop, or they call it a rock musical. And it's like, that's not rock. You don't just start, you like, play electric guitar over the song and it's right. a rock. Like, that's not structurally and melodically things are different. Stylistically, things are different. You have a clear, have you seen, um, I want to say his name's Rocky. He's a theater guy in New York who's real funny, like, blew up during the pandemic on TikTok. Mm-hmm. He does these, like, he did Fast and the Furious. Fast and the Furious was a musical. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. He's hilarious. And he, I think, has done some bits where he's like pretending to be a musical theater performer. Oh, I'm releasing my pop album. And then he records like he's in the studio and he's singing in the most theatrical voice he possibly can. Sure. And that's my take is that I think that there's just a lack of understanding about music outside. You get so immersed in this genre and this medium that you love so much and you're like not really listening to pop or rock Hmm. or you don't know enough about it. And so a lot of theater music, all contemporary theater music, all sounds so much the same to me. And I think, and, and it is, it is, it's really banal. Mm. Um, uh, and that's why I think people like, well, one, you get something out of the box. So a Hamilton or a Hadestown blows up because it's more accessible to more people and people find it musically interesting. Mm-hmm. And then also, is it Pasek or Pasek Pas- and Paul? Pasek. I don't love most of what they've written, but goddamn if they can't write an earworm. Mm-hmm. Their, their sense of melody is is far superior to other people who are writing um, that style of music, that like more simplistic pop, 
post Jason Robert Brown, you know, people want to be rock stars on stage, so to speak. I'm using air quotes right. for the audio. <laughs> rock stars on stage. And it's like, but you're trying to translate that into theater music and they don't, they're not the same. And they, it always ends up sounding like theater pop to me, not actual pop or rock and roll or but whatever. Ha- other genre. So I wonder how much of that, I mean, agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, I wonder, certainly about the fact that like rock musicals, like, Aren't, are generally not aren't rock rocks. musicals anymore. But I wonder how much <laughs> of that is the fact that that the musical landscape, like rock is not the driving force in music. Like to find contemporary you're, you're rock right, music, you have to go, you have to go get it. You have to you like, do. you have to go find it. What, what happens to be playing in the radio when you get right. the Right. Even if that's how you absorb music, there's the other problem of the fact that like we don't absorb music the same way. We absorb music as kind of a feedback loop. Like you listen to what you listen to and then you listen to it again. So if all the music you're hearing is the same over and over again, yep. except for the yep. occasional time somebody says like you have to listen to this song and then you hear that and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you go back to listening to your your sort of circle. Um it then if you don't have the exposure to, to rock music, contemporary or classic or whatever, yeah, you, you won't have anything to compare it to. You just know, like you say, exactly. You know, if I put some fuzz on a guitar, it's a rock musical. It's and like it's a right. No, no, it's not. No, it's just. I do want to say there are some people you know. who are writing good, good stuff that I find interesting. I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm a composer and everyone else sucks, um, but my musical ability and experience it's taken me a long time to discover lies mostly outside of conventional musical theater. And so mm-hmm. that's where I developed my own skill set. and coming back kind of into the musical theater world. It's like, Oh my God, if I hear one more person sing, whatever, I don't know. I don't even like tick, tick, boom. Um, <laughs> very much. Oh no. Oh, that's a shame. Bad. I don't, I think it's, I don't think it's bad. I just don't particularly like it. Hmm. Um, but I had a, I'm sorry. I had a quick point I was going to make about, Oh, I think it's also everything that you just said also, the the boom in musical theater training programs oh yes like like oh, well, don't vocal get me started there yeah go stars ahead. yeah were in to have interesting and unique voices yeah in a previous age and now every, i think all of the the interestingness in a person's voice can be trained right out of it yeah because you've got to learn how to sing this specific role and if you want to be on broadway you've got to belt an f eight times a week like right because it's all one in the same. It's just and <laughs> eating it's the, itself. Well, and it's the problem of when 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 that conversation gets had, I think the point that gets missed is that people say, because you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, there's so many people who can do the thing nowadays. Like the, the, the idea mm-hmm. of like, even when I was in high school, the idea of a triple threat was still pretty unique to somebody who could actually yes. act, sing, and dance. And now that is yes. expected. You're expected to be all three yeah. things at the same time. And... It, one of that reasons is the prolific, the a number of training programs available. Like training is so mm-hmm. much more available. So you are expected mm-hmm. to have availed yourself of it. But the problem isn't so much at the top of the ladder for me. Like people always point to, oh, Broadway only wants this and Broadway only wants that. I think Broadway wants whatever works. But mm-hmm. the, 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 the schools only want this. And that's yes, what the school you've got to, it's, you, You're graded on it. Yeah. So that I think evens, it requires somehow to even the playing field. Yeah. There has to be a, an achievable metric of. And if that's know. all that's, and if that's all that's coming, because it's hard enough, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard to be in this business. If, if that's oh, all that, sure. that comes out of it, if that's all that's available, then that's what you're going to get. And I think it, it does really start, like you said, at the training. And then also the level right above that. I think the sort of like, the, the there has to be a model in the summer stock regional theater 
sort of semi-pro level where people really come up that, no, anything's okay. Like, things are okay. It's okay to be unique. In fact, it should be celebrated. Not only is it okay, yeah. it should be, you know, you, you the number of, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the number of, like, people you hear on older cast albums that people bring to the show who just frankly cannot sing. I mean, just like full <laughs> tilt. I mean, I love Jack yeah. Klugman. He's hilarious. He's wonderful. Man cannot sing on the Gypsy yep. original cast recording, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> there is a a chasing of, and that's like, but you can hear when you listen to those, you can hear the music theater kids in the hallway being like, mm, pitchy. And, you know, you, but you know, they're that way because their teachers are that way. And that's who mm -hmm. they're emulating because they want to be like the teachers because the teacher has a story about how one time they were on an elevator with Bob Fosse. And you're like, ooh, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. it's it's this terrible, terrible feedback loop. And if yeah. somebody wants to give me their drama program, God damn it, I'll whip it into shape. So like I would love to do that so much. But uh, <laughs> um, but it, it is it is very, very true that the, we we are at a race to the middle in a lot of ways with yeah. mainstream, and yeah. I think that as funny as it is and as wonderful, theater's property now, and, like, and also it's got to make money. It's got to be mass appeal. See, I think that's always been the case. Yeah, it's just the fact that what there's so what we are more now in entertainment in general is playing with scared money at the top levels, and. As funny as it was and as much as I loved it and damn it, everybody should see it because you can't believe it. As funny as Diana, the musical is. Oh, um, I did listen to your podcast. About it's so amazing. <laughs> was, um, that was the thing that convinced me that I might it's actually. A, it's amazing. You have to see it. But like it is its nearest cousin in the world of music theater is to me, it wants it. Diana will, would tell you its nearest cousin is Hamilton. Its actual nearest cousin is Pretty Woman. And... Fair. Yep. They're both the same kind of thing. Pretty Woman just doesn't have the guts to be as crazy as Diana is, so it's not nearly yeah. as much fun as Diana is, because Diana is absolutely bonkers, and it's wonderful, and I love every second of it. But it is like... it. That's what happens when you're racing to the middle. You end up with Diana, which is mm. a show that like ticks a lot about... Like you say, has an I Want song. It has a big closing number. It hits a lot of high points. It's about a historical figure. It's got great costumes. And it just sort of, and the tunes are catchy, as bad as they okay. are. Okay. They are catchy. The lyrics are <laughs> the worst part. That's um, interesting But the tunes are, like, you will walk away from that with, like, a couple songs in your head. You won't maybe remember what the dramatic situation was. <laughs> and the words will be kind of escaping you. But you'll be like, no, what was that song? What was that one with the, the Charles thing? That was good. Um but so like that's what you end up with in a race to the middle is is a show like Diana and it if you if you don't have the room on the lower level for personal expression it's never going to happen at the top level because it's just mm -hmm. going to be people who used to be in popular bands going yeah I'll write a musical yeah, yeah. that sounds like if a you're good idea. You're going to money to do that. I'll yeah. do it. I'd, I'd love to have a Tony Award to go with all my Grammys. Like that sounds wonderful. And you know it's hard to write. <laughs> <laughs> to write a musical and no a good one. kidding <laughs> speaking of which so when did you so this is interesting that you say you were i like that phrase failed theater kid that's pretty funny when did so do you, when did you start writing music and songs oh before i turned 10 oh really um, it was that fast yeah i was writing i went to so i'm from philadelphia originally i went to philly actually thursday of last week this is why my apartment's in this um, because my parents are moving out of the house they've lived in for 20, 
20 years. Oh, wow. We moved Where into that house when I was maybe 13. Northeast Philly. Oh, nice. Taconi, um, which okay. is where they were. Their parents both lived in that neighborhood. <laughs> wow. Um, it's very, it's very like small Irish town Catholic yeah. mm-hmm. off the beaten path neighborhood still. Um, so they're moving house. And I know that there are binders and boxes of paperwork and things that I written and stories I was developing in family trees and like chapters of fantasy novels. I submitted my first book proposal when I was 13. Oh. No, I'm sorry. That's a lie. We were in the old house. So I was 10 or 11. Oh, wow. Um, and I got a very nice letter back declining but like someone some woman at this company read my book proposal and my chapters and took the time to write an 11 year old girl and be like please keep writing this is amazing and I'll remember that forever but it was writing so much nonstop from the time like (laughs) I literally have I wrote my own deliverance tattooed on my arm um, (laughs) because there was there's quite a bit about Hamilton's prolificness that speaks to me Mm. in a way that I didn't know how to communicate to everyone that I knew. Mm-hmm. I just never stopped writing. I still carry notebook and pen with me everywhere. Tech has made it easier. I can take notes on my phone. I have hundreds, if not thousands of this point voice memos of just snippets of melody and thoughts that I've had. And like, I just record everything. So in Philly on Thursday, I had to go through boxes and the amount of paperwork and notebooks and like unfinished stories and just the amount of things that I have generated in my lifetime already is daunting (laughs) and I was like great I'm gonna keep a bit of this bit of that I kept one folder I felt like I was curating I was texting my director of Glasstown that day Daniela and I was telling her I am I have one afternoon to curate my entire juvenilia (laughs) this is my Glasstown I don't want to lose all of it but I'm never going to read four boxes of binders of notebooks like it's just never and it's all it's fine like I don't need it right my dad is standing watching me do this saying like you know, even if you're not famous in your lifetime, this is the kind of thing people want to know about a person when they get invested in their work. And I was like, I know, no pressure, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was a lot. Yeah. That's wow. a lot. Yeah. So five minutes of therapy. Thanks for listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, writing musical is hard. I have been writing music sincerely since I was probably about 13 we had a piano I kind of taught myself a little bit after a few lessons I studied music in college I thought I was going to uh switch to the composition track when I was in college Mm. um and I didn't for a number of reasons but kind of just never stopped writing and I I even remember in college thinking I'll write a musical one day I had no idea what it would be about Mm -hmm. I just thought I could do it and I wanted to do it and I gave up music for a lot of my 20s because Musical oh. theater was not my thing, and I fell into film. And um, oh, okay. But like, I would have panic attacks outside audition rooms, mm-hmm. um, and I was just like, I just, I can't do it. And I was closing in on thirty, and I was like, Where is my music? I need it. I'm writing all these other things, but like, and I kind of just dove back into it, mm-hmm. full force, really. <laughs> well, because you seem to have, like, in reading your bio, you have bounced around a lot to different mm-hmm. things, which I 120 percent, as someone who's done the same thing, respect and love. Uh, but so what was, so in your twenties, your when you, you, you put away music and picked up what filmmaking was that when, uh, when, uh, mythos came in to your yeah. sphere. Okay. That was um, the first film project that I wrote, produced and created like t- me. Yeah. Tell the, the folks, tell the folks about that. No, <laughs> um, I, I wrote and directed and learned how to film edit something I still love doing and am teaching now a little bit, which is so much fun. Um, 
a web series when web series were like first kind of fresh and new and not everybody had one about actors bartending in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and my web series is called Mythos. And it was about uh, the mythological gods of all pantheons um, who are like eternal beings still alive, but like trying to keep a low profile. <laughs> um, which I mean, I, what did I call I I, I called it um, American Gods Meets Never Let Me Go. <laughs> Oh, wow. Which is pretty, pretty intense. Wow. Yeah. But not an act. Because <laughs> it's like, it's a lot of, I mean, if you live that long, I was like, what do, what do people deal with? They fall in love and they watch people die. Like sure. they, they've lost their powers to some degree. People don't believe in them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just trying to like get by. Um, and I strongly identify with the archetype of Athena. So I was the Athena character mm-hmm. and I was the lead. And um it was an, I got some lifelong friends out of that and we submitted to a couple of film festivals. We won all of the awards we won were acting awards, which made me so proud because I had directed for the first time and my friends were super talented. And also we had no money. So my production value was low, mm-hmm. but the one thing we could pull off was good acting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of kickstarted my foray into filmmaking. And then what yeah. brought you back? To the like, what was the thing when you say you need your music? Like, what was the what was the kick there? What was the the impetus? I missed singing. Mm. I I have always thought of myself as a vocalist first, as a singer first, um, and it's a something I still struggle with. Is like now that I write, uh, people will introduce me as a writer, and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, but I'm a singer. I started writing so that uh, same reason I started doing film stuff was like I'm creating my own work because I'm not being given the opportunities that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later in my twenties, I was like, I just started songwriting again, like banged out a few, started renting piano rooms. I got like a $90 Casio keyboard. Um, and then when I moved overseas, I lived in Australia for a couple of years. Melbourne's a super musical city. Yeah. Um, I think more live music venues than Austin, mm. something like that, which I've heard Austin has the most live music venues the, of any in place in the US. States. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm just live music everywhere, super, super musical city. And I was writing nonstop and I was kind of pursuing the singer songwriter path. I never thought that would be a career. I have no interest in touring or truly being a rock star, but I was like easy to get gigs. And there were a lot of cute bars with pianos. And I was like, can I come play? I still can't play guitar. <laughs> and piano is not a portable <laughs> instrument. So anytime I find a piano, I'm like, Oh my God, there's a piano. Let me add it. Let me add it. Um, and while I was there, I, my, I hit up my encyclopedia my musical theater encyclopedia friend, Mark. And I don't like, I know I'm remembering this conversation wrong, but I said, what are we writing a musical about? Just out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And he tells me he thinks Neil Gaiman's Stardust would be a great musical. Mm. He is absolutely right. Sure. (laughs) Um, So I started writing, like just figured like, why not? I'll just write a few songs and see how it works. I'll use that as a framework. I'll, Mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, the odds of getting the book right seem, you know, distant and fairly impossible but but the writing process i wrote so much good challenging music like challenged myself as a composer and i was so proud of it i am still so proud of it um but i wanted something that i could finish i knew i wanted to like create something for the stage that was not a conventional book musical that would feature me and my ability and my work and as a performer, not mm-hmm. just my, as a composer, I was like, I want to write something for myself to perform in. Um, and I also have not to get on a soapbox and then sound super ignorant about it. I 
because I, I, I hate the idea of like talking on my ass or coming back in five years to this podcast and being like, wow, you ignorant. Um, <laughs> there is not a lot of true diversity in casting mm-hmm. in musical theater, even in, you know, shows that are renowned for their uh, in the industry for their quote diverse casting. There's no body diversity in that casting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you might have an entire cast full of black and brown folks and they are very likely to all be relatively conventionally good looking in good shape, not have any disabilities. Like that's not the world I know. That's not the New York. I know that's, those are not the performers that I find the most interesting all the time. Like I, a lot of the work that I've made mythos included was written to feature friends of mine. Mm -hmm. It was like, Oh, I'm going to write this role for Tori. I'm going to write this role for Gary. And so I'm seeing this, you know, industry, this musical theater industry that I'm only peripherally a part of. And I would like to dip my toes back in. I'm not auditioning. I'm not going to EPAs anymore. You know, and I'm not, I'm not going to be in the, the next revival of Music Man or whatever. It's just not my bag. It's not what I do. But there's so much else that can be done with the form, I think. And, and I felt like I was finally in a place as a composer, as a performer, as an adult to have an interesting idea and execute it. And so why, why, but then why did you go back to the Brontes for Glasstown? Like, what was the, when did that come into it? Um, when I found out that Branwell existed, <laughs> I was like, really? oh, they're a band. Yeah, I really huh. had never, not that I remember ever hearing that they had a brother. And he is the least well-known. We mm-hmm. have almost nothing available to us that he wrote. He was the first person to be published. Right. He, he published poetry first before any of the girls did. Um and then the more I, I thought it was a great idea and I submitted it as a concept to a couple of writing cohorts right before the pandemic started. I was like, here's this idea I'm working on. It's an interesting idea. I told like three people and I was like, this is an interesting idea. I think it could work. And everybody lit up every time I said something about it. They're hmm. like, that's a cool idea. I'm like, it is. I know. And it's it's an idea I think that is more. It's not just interesting to me and my friends. It's an it's a concept that I think would play to strangers. It's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, we're going to see this film that we know you're in. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of the show has broader appeal. Um, and then there was a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get into any of the writing cohorts. And I was very isolated. And uh, my roommates had left the city. So July of last year, when I heard back from the final cohort, I was like, screw it. Can I write it anyway? Mm-hmm. No idea what it was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a play with music. I didn't know if it was going to be narrative or... Um, or like have scenes. I assume that there would be spoken bits, you know, maybe there it's takes place over the course of one night. I just didn't have any strong vision for what it was going to be mm-hmm. until I started writing it. We recorded like our uh, incomplete complete as a draft, but incomplete uh, workshop version on stage in February screened it in March. And then three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we performed that whole version plus one new song outdoors at a venue called culture lab lic mm. in uh in long island city in queens and it was amazing it was such a i mean we we knew it was gonna do better it, we needed an audience sure like the filmed version was an incredible opportunity and it stands alone as its own version but it is weird to have all these songs in and there's no applause it was eight people in the room mm-hmm. there were eight people on stage and then three other people in the room that was it mm-hmm. um and it was an exhilarating experience to have anyone give us time resources energy 
talent to create something that I that I had the idea for. That was an incredible experience in and of itself. But we wanted it. We always wanted it to do to go farther and like when theater reopens or whatever the safe way is for it to be performed. So sure. Yeah. Starting to do it live now. Sure. (laughs) And is the so what what have you discovered about it as you've been performing it? Because you sort of describe it very ambiguously, which I'm always interested in when you sort of like, it's Damn. neither this nor that, or it's neither that nor this. But obviously it started from one place and then it gets performed. And as everybody knows, it becomes, you sort of discover uh-huh. what it is. Writing is a lot more like sculpture than painting to me. It, it's always, you're carving away. And okay. Find, you know what I mean? And you're just throwing away the things that aren't the what I'm writing and you're discovering it or like treasure hunting. Like I feel like every time I write something, I always feel like I'm figuring out what it is more than I'm like yes. creating it. And yes. every time you perform it, you know, if it's a play or whatever, if, every time you have a reading in front of people, you go, oh, that's what it is. Or, oh, that's not what it is. You know what I mean? Like you're like, oh, that wasn't, that scene isn't any good or that needs, it needs to go because it's not, it's not what this is. So how has it grown for you as the couple of times you've gotten to perform it and feel it? I mean, because you're up there on stage, which must be amazing. Oh, it's, inc- it was. Uh... I can't imagine what that's like to really, <laughs> it's really interesting to be like. I, I sit as a writer to sit in the house and watch the audience watch the show. That's how I figure out what's going on. And I always would imagine that, like, if I was performing in it at the same time, like, I wouldn't be taking notes. Obviously, I'd have to be present in the moment performing the thing. But I would also in the moment be like, "Ooh, that needs a rewrite. That's not working." Mm-hmm. I'm feeling that you know what I mean? Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Is that is that your vibe for that? Yeah. Ongoing <laughs> um, notes. Yeah. Um, taking notes in my score. Sure. Um. I I knew I was going to play Charlotte. She's the oldest. I'm the oldest in my real family. Mm-hmm. She was kind of the driving force behind them getting published at all. Yeah. Ever. She was very ambitious and hardworking and determined and intent about all of these things. And she then outlived all of her siblings by about six years. Yeah. And became the accidental curator of their legacy which is why we know less about Branwell and Anne. Right. Um, not because I think my take is that not, she did, she had no idea how they were going to live on. They were famous briefly in their lifetime. Um, but Branwell brought shame to the family and wrecked his relationship with his sister, Charlotte. They had been very, very close and she was ashamed, you know, for people to know that he drank himself to death. Yeah. And, um, and so she kind of just, didn't talk about it. She she prevented the republication. I, th- I think Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Yes, yeah, she did. She, um, well, she, I don't know. If she she certainly wanted to. I don't know that she, if yeah. she could actually do it because it was wildly popular. Uh, but, it was, yeah, yeah. But she so like Anne is a little bit less famous as well, right? Because yes, she, Emily was wildly the you know crazy uh, talent of right. the family for yes. sure. Um. So in writing it, in in developing Glasstown and. I felt pretty early on, I thought that the the emotional arc of the show would mirror their lives. So the songs wouldn't be about them per se, but it would be from their emotional perspective. And something that I wanted, and I'm still fighting for as I'm going, doing rewrites, something that I wanted all of the music to be was that if you take a song out of context and listen to it and you don't know what, what it's from, it's still a good song, you like it, and the words mean something to you. Mm-hmm. So it's not, we're not naming each other in the songs. We're not referencing historical events, but uh, 
as an example, there's a song, Villain Victim. It's a duet between Bran and Charlotte. They both fell in love with married people around the same time. Um, and that was kind of like the time at which their relationship started to break. Mm-hmm. Um, and the emotional content, the, the lyrics of that song are about heartbreak and abandonment and pain and longing for someone like one of the saddest lyrics I've ever written is just, I wish you wanted me, mm. which that's, that's not unique to the Bronte system. It's universal. If anything, hasn't yeah. anyone ever not felt that at some point um, that wasn't English. Um, but the, so what it became was a, a I've described it as a rock requiem. Mm-hmm. It is a show about grief. It is a show about creation in isolation. They were very isolated as young people and even as adults. Um, I was very isolated while writing it during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, I've experienced grief and loss and heartbreak. And and towards the end, Charlotte's very alone, but kind of the specters of her musician family are still on stage with her. And she kind of steps into, there's this recurring theme of the great beyond. Mm-hmm. And in, early in the show, that's not a reference. It, like they're looking at their future. They're looking at like, how how are things going to go for us? We're really excited about what life is going to be. It's our future. It's our adulthood. It's our success. But by the end of the show, the great beyond is death. For people who don't know, like you say, Charlotte outlived everybody by six years. She still died at 39. She still died. She was 38 or 39. Yeah. They were all very young when they died for various, for for a, for myriad reasons. I mean, they all died for very, very, like of different things. And obviously it was a time to be alive where people did just die um, (laughs) of disease or childbirth or whatever. Like things were fatal. Lots of things were fatal. Um, I think they had two older siblings they did. who died they, very very young in that right? same yeah. song villain victim one of the lyrics is buried like the older girls yeah i mean it's, they, had, they had two older sisters who died when they were 10 and 11 charlotte was like eight years old yeah. Anne was still a toddler right and even and it's yeah so it's like it, it, they write these you know and they're famous for having these great what we consider grand romantic novels mm-hmm. but inside all of these novels is a tremendous amount of social commentary and a tremendous amount of just like you said, I mean, to, to me, it's sort of it, they each novel, even though they each only really had one great novel. Um, mm-hmm. it, there is a sort of like, right, like you're running out of time vibe to it where it's, yeah. it's really like they they pour everything into Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. Nonstop. And, you know, like these things are and these are epic novels that will live in the, pan, you know, they're in the canon. They'll they'll be studied forever and they hold yeah. up. They hold the, you know, the test of time. So. Incredible. Yeah, like they did good, but you know they also all died. Before. Nobody made it to forty. So they nobody, nobody made it to forty. Nobody made it to forty. A lot of them didn't make it out of thir- like close to thirty. Like it's just such yeah. a like, oh, it's a wild. Yeah, 
It's it's a really wild thing. <laughs> it's just like it's very very sad. Yeah, sad. But I think that in the songs that I've listened to that you've shared, I don't get a sense of melancholy out of them, and I don't mm-hmm. get a sense of worse romanticizing suffering, which you know I think Jane Eyre kind of drifts into the musical drifts into every now and again I think most adaptations of the Bronte stuff kind of drifts into that every now and again because when you're taking when you're shrinking down the Mm -hmm. grandness of those novels it sort of ends up feeling that way it's like oh god isn't it so romantic and glorious to suffer Mm -hmm. I don't get that vibe from what I've heard from Glasstown it doesn't it feels very much more matter of fact which I greatly appreciate yeah I appreciate hearing that because it certainly wasn't I didn't set out to do that and Mm -hmm. a lot of the music most of the music and the arc until we, 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 there's a point in the show at which we like to joke the crew and the, the cast and various looks like before it's just like a s- sad, slow slog to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and villain victim is kind of that turning point. Mm-hmm. It's like the relationship between Charlotte and Branwell starts to break down and they both experience heartbreak now. And then very soon after that in the, the historical timeline of their lives, um, they started getting sick and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to be so glib about that, but it's true. That's what happened. This is why I was so much more interested in who they were as people. Charlotte in particular, there's a great biography by a woman named Claire Harmon, I believe that I, I read. Um, I was so much more interested in who they were behind the scenes and less in specifically Jane Eyre. I love Wuthering Heights, putting that in context for who Emily was um, very likely on the autism spectrum very likely aromantic slash asexual um, wrote this incredibly passionate novel about like dangerous love. And it's kind of like, what did she think it was? Cause it, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. I like it so much. Like it was obviously exciting to her in some way, but she didn't have, she didn't have friendships outside the family as a choice. Like she was very, very insular and uh, very strong willed and her family respected that loved that about her. They seem to see it as a, a feature, not a flaw. Right. Um, she was, she, in, in another context, she may have, uh, you know, experienced some sort of social backlash. Um, but she was free in the context of her family to be exactly who she was, which is incredible to me. Um, I, I, the more I read about Charlotte, the more Jane Eyre plays to me like wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a romanticization of suffering Hence her, it's a self-deprecating, oh, just because I'm small and poor and plain. And like, to me, that's very like, um, I know I'm a piece of shit, you know? (laughs) You know, (laughs) there's a joke that like dudes do that or like, oh, I know, like nobody likes me. It's like, I think that this was the only way she could see herself being with, creating this fantasy of being with this married man that she did fall in love with in her real life. Mm -hmm the only way that that they would be able to be together was if he was widowed and he did support her. He was possibly the first person in her life outside her family to support her dreams and her aspirations and tell her she was good at things and liked her writing. And uh, she, she spoke three languages. She taught right. at a school. Like she was, she was very well-educated and very smart. She was very, very good at academia. Um, and this man encouraged her and they had a sweet friendship and she wanted to be with him. And he ended their friendship at a certain point mm-hmm. because it was not appropriate or what, you know, whatever yeah. his reasons are. However, he kept her letters, mm-hmm. which is how we know what she said to him. 
because he kept her letters. Like there was, there had to have been some tender feeling there for sure. Mm -hmm. He cared about her, whatever shape that care took. But, but Jane Eyre to me plays like dark wish fulfillment, Mm -hmm. the crazy demonized wife in the attic. Right. Injures him. Poor brooding Rochester. He's so put upon like what a sad life he has. And then there's the bit where their fortunes are reversed at the end where right. he's suddenly poor, but right. she's an independent she's, woman. She's got she's money, now, money now, which is yeah. like, I feel like almost she, that's the kind of thing that says to me, like her sisters read it and they were like, yeah, but why do you need, like, you don't need no man. Right. That kind of thing. <laughs> why can't you throw in a little bit of, no, 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 you need your own money. You need to get your own bag. Right. <laughs> I don't love this story, but there are elements of the story that I, are so appealing you know the the passionate love the 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 mental respect that they have for each other she's not just like oh my god he's so hot we can't keep our hands off each other mm-hmm. he he stimulates her mind which was her superpower i have to ask though also what is your favorite song i think no it's a surprise to me too as i'm looking at this list i do believe my favorite song is i might cry in the light of the virgin morning huh which is to me First of all, more f- female duets in the any canon ever. Sure. Thank you. It is beautifully written musically. Mm-hmm. And it is such, it's so simple. It's not overwrought the way a lot of this can be. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Blanche Ingram and Jane both singing about their perspective on Rochester. And it comes right after um, uh, painting her portrait where yes. Jane is literally self-flagellating. No wonder he doesn't love you. You'll, you'll. You know what I mean? This yeah. is what I mean. I feel like it's it is self-deprecating and like, all right, girl, like give yeah, it a rest. Settle down. Um, but there's this beautiful, it's beautifully orchestrated, it's beautifully sung. I think the lyrics are so simple and stirring and perfect. And it's it gives you it's so easy to write off characters like Blanche as like the bitch. Right. She's like, she's the foil. It's obviously like she's prettier and richer and probably blonde, and like everything that um, you know when you center yourself as the heroine of things and there's like a man in the triangle, Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, obviously the other girl, it's misery business. It's the Paramore song, misery business. The the other girl, like that bitch. Yeah. It is so easy to write her off. And this song gives her so much, I think good treatment, like an incredibly humane take and responsible take on a character who is also a woman making a decision that she doesn't want to necessarily have to make because in her mind, she's doing the right thing for herself and her family. Mm-hmm. I th- and it's just beautiful. Like, I, I could cry every time I listen to it. It's so beautiful to listen to. <laughs> Miriam, thank you so much. This is such a wonderful conversation. Where can people find you on the internet? I am the only person on the planet with my name. So if you Google nice. Miriam Poltro, it is me. Nice. Um, M-I-R-I-A-M-P-U-L-T-R-O. Um, I am Miriam Poultry.com. I am Miriam Poultry on Instagram and Twitter and various other things. And there are links to my music and my work and my friend's work. And um, I'm so thrilled to have been here. Thank you for this. In the light of the virgin morning, I look out on a misty haze. The estate has an ancient beauty mother must appraise. As I stroll through the pinks and roses, as I savor the columbine, 
I am grateful for all he is And what will one day all be mine The perfect plan If only I could love the man But I'm not quite sure I can The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow if you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Miriam Poltro for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. This is my fate. What more do I desire?